Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode number 199, Why Did the Soviet Union Collapse? Last time, we recounted the attempted coup of Mikhail Gorbachev in 1991. This week, I'm going to go over some of the main reasons the Soviet Union collapsed shortly after the overthrow attempt. The reasons are many, and it would be near impossible to cover them all, but I'll try to share with you what I think are the main reasons. The standard argument used in the West is that the underlying concept of communism was the reason the Soviet Union was destined to fail. This is the most straightforward answer, and one that may be indeed a significant contributing factor in the collapse of one of the great powers of the second half of the 20th century. My question that I hope to give some meaning to is why is this the reason? Was it because there was no incentive to work harder? Was it because there was such an enormous bureaucracy in place that nothing could be done? Was it due to the lack of honest discussion about the problems that they were facing in the country? Was it the sheer size of the Soviet Union that made it inherently ungovernable? Was it purely an economic issue that had its beginnings with the disastrous Russian Civil War and compounded by the terrible losses caused by the Great Patriotic War, also known as World War II? Maybe, and very likely, a combination of all these reasons and more. Many of you listening to this podcast were alive and aware of the events going on in 1991. An equal number, anyone under the age of, say, 45, were not. I was 33 when it all went down, and I could still remember the stunning speed by which the collapse happened. As I recounted in episode one, my Russian history professor, Dr. Paul Average, at Queens College in New York City, had predicted the fall in 1977. He told all of us in the class that the Soviet Union had about 20 years left before it would fade into oblivion. I would venture to say that not one person in the class believed him. But there it is. He was right. Just off by a few years. So what was the reason he gave us back then, and is there any corroborating evidence that we have to prove his hypothesis correct? In short, Dr. Average claimed that the Soviet Union was flat broke and that they were out of money and there was no conceivable way that they could pull themselves out of the economic disaster that was about to happen. So I go back a few months ago. My brother Alex, while perusing a uh, used bookstore in New Jersey, found a smoking gun. The book, The Coming Soviet Crash, Gorbachev's Desperate Pursuit of Credit, in Western financial markets, was published in 1989, two years before the collapse. It spells out the financial crisis that was coming to a head that would bring down one of the superpowers of the day in a swift and complete manner. I'm going to be coming back to this book later in this episode. So, what were the leading causes of the collapse of the USSR? One article I found online summed up the main reasons quite succinctly. It was written by Michael Ray for the Encyclopedia Britannica. It gives us six factors that he believes caused the failure of the Soviet Union. They are the political, economic, military, Afghanistan, social, and nuclear factions, factors. Now I'm going to add two more that I think are critical, 
and that is the population factor and the strain of the Cold War factor. This is the structure of how this episode moves forward. The political factor that Michael Ray points out is the ideas of glasnost, openness and transparency, as well as perestroika, restructuring or reforming, that were espoused by Mikhail Gorbachev, starting with his elevation to the position of General Secretary of the Communist Party in 1985, which was part of the problem. He also contends that the abandonment of the Brezhnev Doctrine facilitated the collapse. As a reminder, the Brezhnev Doctrine stated that the Soviet Union was to intervene, including militarily in any country where socialist communist rule was under threat, like they did in the invasion of Hungary in 1956. While these were contributing factors, I believe the political factors were older and much more deep-seated. After the Stalin era, we have a nomenclatura or bureaucracy that was so fearful for so many years of having any thoughts or ideas of their own that they were unable to come up with ways of dealing with the pressing issues that were facing the USSR. This led to the period known as the Brezhnev Stagnation Era. Add to that, the elites were old and stuck in the past. Glasnost and Perestroika were Gorbachev's way of breaking the mold of the past. One can argue that his mistake was not in doing what he did, but in the speed in which he did them. Most people can confidently drive a car at 35 to 55, maybe 75 to 90 miles an hour. But not a lot of us would be as confident or able when the speed climbs to, say, 200 to 250 miles per hour. And that's what I believe was the problem with Gorbachev which we see did not happen as much in China as it switched into a more capitalistic, under-communist type of economy. As for the abandonment of the Brezhnev Doctrine, yes, it did accelerate the collapse of the countries who were part of the Warsaw Pact or behind the Iron Curtain. But I believe this was going to happen anyway because of the second factor that I think really brought down the Soviet Union, and that is the economic factor. The reality of the USSR in 1985, and likely for at least 25 years more before, is it was broke. In her book, The Coming Soviet Crash, Judy Shelton shares several compelling arguments as to why the country was out of money and why Gorbachev was reaching out to the West to help bail it out. The general secretary was never going to admit that the Soviet socialism was a failed economic system, or that communism was a failing political system. That was everything against everything he believed in and lived for. Gorbachev needed to find a way to get some much-needed cash without telling the West what the accounting books looked like. Here's what Shelton writes, quote, Yes, he admits, his country has suffered economic disappointments during the past decade. But just as capitalist countries have periods of expansion, followed by a recession, Gorbachev asserts that the Soviet Union is merely experiencing a temporary, although rather lengthy, period of stagnation. At some point in the future, perestroika will put the Soviet system back on track. In the meantime, during a period of transition, relief from arms competition would be most helpful. The West could no doubt use a breathing spell as well. 
Perestroika was a critical element here, as a restructuring along with reform was all that was necessary, according to Gorbachev. Not an abandonment of the Soviet socialist system. He sweetened the deal by telling the West that he would reduce military spending if they would do the same, because, gosh darn it, isn't that what we all wanted? The problem was how much money they really needed. The numbers are pretty staggering. Debt to the West went from over $25 billion to $37 billion in just two years, from 1985 to 87. What we see from the economic data that the Soviet Union would publish every year was that it always had a surplus based on the reported revenue versus expenditures from 1970 through 1986. And if this is so, why do they need perestroika? Why do they need extra money if they already have a surplus? Well, in her book, Shelton points out, it turns out that about 30% of the revenues that were listed in their financial statements are unexplained. In 1985, this represents 112 billion rubles, or the equivalent at the time of $180 billion. This is a considerable number, and Shelton points out that the accounts of the Soviet era would report revenues of 825 million rubles, million rubles, you see, not billions, from the Forest Service. And that's really a mere pittance compared to the overall income that was reported in 1985 of 390 billion. So this missing 112 billion is incomprehensible. When you continue back to 1940, it was this way every year, which makes you realize the Soviet economy, and in particular the Soviet government, wasn't operating on fumes. They were running on nothing. It had to collapse economically. The other blow to the Soviet economy, and this is really apropos to today, was the collapse of the price of oil in 1986, where the price of oil dropped from $27 a barrel to under 10 This was a considerable drop, and it had followed another plunge from its high of $35 in 1980. To put it in today's dollars, we're talking about a drop from about $135 a barrel to about 28 This puts a massive hole in the revenue side of a chief exportable commodity. It is, in my opinion, why Russia today benefits from the destabilization of the Middle East, which causes oil prices to rise. They need the money just like the Soviet Union did in the 1980s. Just think about that for a moment. The third factor in the collapse was somewhat tied to the economic factor, and that was the military. It has been estimated that the Soviet military used up between, say, 12 and 20 percent of the gross, gross national product. In contrast, the United States spends about 3 to 4 percent of GDP. Gorbachev knew that this continued spending was way too high for his country. Still, he also had to keep in mind that if he cut too much out of the budget, the likelihood of his surviving in office was nil. Stalin knew that he had to control that wing of the Soviet Union, which is likely part of the reason for the great purge of the military before World War II. Now we come to the fourth factor in the demise of the Soviet Union, and that is Afghanistan. 
The war between the USSR and the Mujahideen fighters in Afghanistan lasted for 10 years. It was a tremendous burden on the economy of the Soviet Union and its military. It was a highly unpopular war, even with the lack of honest media coverage within the country. The war, which stretched from December 1979 to February 1989, not only cost the lives of countless people on both sides, it came with international sanctions and embargoes against the USSR in a time when they could least afford it. Many internal issues roiled the Soviet Union during the Afghan war. As Michael Ray puts it in his article, quote, Many soldiers from the Central Asian republics felt closer ethnic and religious ties to Afghans than they did to Russians, and protests were widespread. In the European republics, cleavage with Moscow was even more dramatic. Anti-war demonstrations broke out in Ukraine, while opposition forces in the Baltic republics viewed the war in Afghanistan through the lenses of the Russian occupation of their own countries. This fueled the secessionist movements that proceeded, largely unchecked, to declarations of independence by all three Baltic states in 1990. This brings us to the fifth factor, social issues. Glasnost, or openness, ushered in a new era in Soviet society. The thought that you could disagree with the government, point out overt corruption and greed without repercussions, was an awakening for the people. They could now talk about what they saw as social and political injustices that could have earned them a trip to a Siberian gulag at one time. The openness was like peeling off a scab from a wound prematurely. It hurt and exposed for all to see what was wrong with their country. As chief advisor to Gorbachev, Alexander Yakovlev, described the challenge facing them, quote, The main issue today is not only economic. This is only the material side of the process. The heart of the matter is in the political system and its relation to man. The Soviet government was always supposed to take care of the needs of the people within the country. Still, it was becoming more and more apparent in the 1980s that this was not something that could happen anymore, if it ever happened at all. The people of the Soviet Union were now, more than ever, becoming aware of what the West had and how their people lived a far better life than they did. They discovered that people in the West didn't have to wait in long lines to get staples of food and other necessities. In many articles, they point out that when the McDonald's opened up in Moscow in 1985, the lines were enormous to get and try this delicacy of the West. Now, this put a considerable strain on the communist government to explain the disparities. They also had to explain to the countries of the Warsaw Pact why they should stay in the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union when the West was out there with open arms, showing them a supposed better way. In 1984, Edward Shevardnadze told Gorbachev, quote, Everything is rotten. It has to be changed. Boris Yeltsin, as we learned in the episodes about his time as a Russian ruler, felt the same way. His vision of the new society for Russia was vastly different than those of Gorbachev. We now know that Yeltsin hadn't really thought things through and that the new country that came out of the dissolution of the Soviet Union wasn't all that great. Still, at that time, 
there was the hope of a better Russia, and it wasn't under the thumb of the Communist Party. The sixth factor that Ray mentions is a nuclear factor. It isn't necessarily what you think it is. It isn't about the atomic weaponry that threatened the world. It was an accident involving a nuclear power plant known as Chernobyl. The explosion of the nuclear reactor Unit 4 on April 26, 1986 in Ukraine sent out over 400 times the radiation from the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima in 1945. With Gorbachev being in power for only a year and him proclaiming the concept of glasnost, the reaction of the government, hiding any hint of the disaster, caused a significant blow to the confidence of the people for the Soviet powers that be. Containment of the radiation leak was only achieved on May 4th, nine days later, but the enormous damage was already done. To make things even worse, Gorbachev only announced the disaster on May 14th, a full 18 days after the meltdown. The lack of openness caused many in the Soviet Union to doubt his truthfulness, further weakening the Communist Party. The party leader was to admit that it was a mistake in a 2006 interview. Mr. Gorbachev said, quote, The nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl 20 years ago this month, even more than my launch of perestroika, was perhaps the real cause of the collapse of the Soviet Union five years later. I'm going to let you decide whether this is true or not. Still, my opinion is that his comment was just another deflection away from his responsibility in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now we come to the two other reasons that I believe helped cause the Soviet Union to dissolve. Now, the population factor, you could say maybe started with Operation Barbarossa, the Nazi invasion of the USSR that started on June 21st, 1941. Although you have to admit, Stalin's actions of purges, the Holodomor, the Russian Civil War, were equally devastating to the population. But let's go back to the Nazi invasion. The number of military casualties suffered by the people of the Soviet Union is staggering. There are varying numbers from different sources, but the generally accepted numbers have around between 8 and 9 million. These include those killed in action, those that died in field hospitals from wounds and illnesses, and those killed while in captivity by the Nazis. The numbers of those who were wounded so severely that they were considered, quote-unquote, unrecoverable, was somewhere between 11 and 12 million. While we know of many women who served in combat roles in the conflict known as the Great Patriotic War, the military was predominantly male. The estimates of women who participated directly in the war effort, mostly as medics and in supporting roles, were around 800,000, which represented about 3% of the total number serving in the Soviet military. It gets even worse when you realize how many civilians were killed during the war. These numbers vary greatly, but the best way to look at it is to use census figures in 1941 and compare them to 1946. In June of 1941, before the invasion, there were 196 million citizens of the Soviet Union. In January of 1946, the number was about 170 million. There were about 12 million children born and about 11.6 million people 
who died of natural causes. So this is a wash. If we take out the 9 million men who died in combat, we come up with an estimated 17 million civilian casualties. So you might ask, how does this add up to the cause of the eventual collapse of the USSR in 1991, 46 years later? Well, a population drain of this magnitude, especially of men who are in the prime of their reproductive life, makes it hard for a country, even one as resource-rich as the Soviet Union, ever to recover. We also have to put these losses into another perspective, and that is the number of towns that were virtually wiped out, and that number comes up to around 70,000. We also have to take into account the number of children who were not born during this period. The rough estimates are approximately 20 million children didn't make it into the world due to the war. Trying to rebuild a nation after taking these types of losses is a monumental undertaking, especially so if you are underpopulated. I firmly believe that the population losses stressed the economy so much that it never really recovered. We already know that the budget deficits were enormous due to the war effort. What we found out later was that the deficits continued until the end of the Soviet Union. Think of the lost tax revenue due to the population losses as another compounding issue. Now we move on to the last factor, and that is the strain of the Cold War. After being reluctant but necessary allies against the Axis powers in World War II, the United States and its allies engaged in a Cold War against the Soviet Union that took up an immense amount of resources and money that the Soviet Union was nowhere near capable of supporting. The United States, because of its rebuilding of Europe, went into an economic boom period. The U.S. did not have to reconstruct its own country as the war, aside from Pearl Harbor and kind of little things up in Alaska, was not fought on its land. This is opposed to the Soviet Union, which was, as I mentioned, devastated. The USSR did appropriate a lot of valuable assets of those countries in their new sphere of influence as reparations. Still, it wasn't nearly enough to cover the costs. The Warsaw Pact nations, for the most part, were in almost as bad of a shape as the Soviet Union, and for the next 40 or so years needed support from Moscow to survive. Because of the lack of resources in a communist system that had little incentive for the workers to produce at a more efficient level than the West could do, they had a hard time improving. When I went to East Berlin in 1970 as a young boy, what struck me was seeing bullet holes in the walls of many of the buildings on the streets that my father and I roamed on. 25 years after the end of the war, and it still looked gray and drab, as opposed to the modern, bright, and colorful look of West Berlin. Add to the economic burden on the Soviet Union were all the proxy wars that were being fought around the world between the forces of communism and capitalism. We had the Korean conflict, the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and so many more battles of idealism in Africa, South America, and Asia. The United States had NATO and its more prosperous allies like Great Britain to chip in, while the Soviet Union really only had China, which was going through a lot of economic turmoil to help out. 
This was an untenable position and colossal strain on the USSR. Then there's the issue of what Americans called Star Wars, also known as the Strategic Defensive Initiative, or SDI, with the Reagan administration's ratcheting up of spending on advanced weapons to pressure the Soviet Union to up its spending as a means of destroying their economy. In actuality, we now know that it only had a minimal effect on the amount of money the Soviet military spent. By the time of SDI, the USSR was pretty much broke and could not muster any more capital to fund large-scale weapon systems. So the idea that the SDI caused the collapse of the Soviet Union is really dubious based on what we now know. So in conclusion, I presented eight different significant factors that I believe led to the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. The political, economic, military, Afghanistan, social, nuclear, population, and Cold War strain factors were the major ones I feel were at the crux of the problems that faced the country. Is this a comprehensive list? By no means was it meant to be, and there are likely a number of others. And if you'd like to chime in on what I haven't covered, would like to disagree with any of them, head on over to our Facebook page, Russian Rulers History, and start a discussion. It's amazing that in 10 years, we still have a very large and very lively group there. And if you haven't stopped by, you're missing a lot of great information and banter, as well as some fabulous pictures. I just love what all the followers are posting, pictures from old-time Russia and from the Soviet era and posters. and It's really great if you haven't come by. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time for another important episode, this one, number 200. I haven't decided exactly what I'll be covering, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be a fun and educational one. So until next time, das vidanya и спасибо большое.